Hello, and welcome to SeaburnPro.net's inaugural podcast. Today's podcast is about Major General William Luther Siebert, the first commander of the United States Chemical Warfare Service, and marks the beginning of a series on the early years of the Chemical Warfare Service. This podcast is available in both audio and video on our website, SeaburnPro.net, and should be on iTunes soon. If you downloaded this podcast, we thank you. We also ask a favor. If you enjoy this and everything else SeaburnPro.net has to offer, please let your friends and colleagues know about us. Like us on Facebook and spread the word. Without you and without your support, we wouldn't exist. Now, with all that out of the way, on with the show. Here we are, SeaburnPro.net's inaugural podcast. My name is Brad Trevs, and today I'll be talking about the wild early years of the Chemical Warfare Service. But before I get to that, I want to get on my soapbox for a minute. I am always astounded by the lack of historical knowledge about the Chemical Warfare Service among members of the Seaburn profession. For example, many Seaburn soldiers know that General William Seabert was the first commander of the Chemical Warfare Service. The Seaburn School at Fort Leonard Wood recognizes him as the father of the Chemical Corps. The annual Seabert Award for the best chemical unit is named after him. However, few know anything more about William Luther Seabert. Worse, the Army loves to omit a significant part of his story for reasons that will become apparent. We are going to remedy that. Our story starts today in 1907 in Panama. Major William Seabert, United States Military Class of 1884, was an accomplished engineer in the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, specializing in the construction and development of locks and dams, when in 1907 he took over the construction of the locks on the Atlantic side of the Panama Canal Project, the famous Gatun Locks. Seven years later, on August 15, 1914, just 14 days after World War I began in Europe, the Panama Canal opened for business. Its construction remains one of the greatest engineering successes of all time, though the events then taking place in Europe overshadowed the American accomplishment. Following the opening of the canal in August 1914, Siebert traveled to China for several months as part of a Red Cross mission to assist the Chinese in flood mitigation. In his absence, Congress moved to recognize all of the senior military officers involved in the construction of the Panama Canal. Therefore, on March 15, 1915, then-Lieutenant Colonel Siebert was promoted to Brigadier General just a month before the Germans launched their major chlorine gas attack near Ypres, kicking off the Second Battle of Ypres. Readers of SeaburnPro.net know that this was not the first chemical attack of the war, but it clearly marked the beginning of an escalating chemical war that would continue until the armistice. But before we get to the chemical war, our story gets a little complex. For most of the history of the United States Army, regular Army officers could hold two ranks. One, their regular Army rank, and the other, a kind of brevet rank in the Army when it mobilized for war. Thus, a regular Army officer might hold the rank of captain, but when the nation mobilized for war and expanded the National Army, that same officer might hold the rank of colonel or even brigadier general. This peacetime wartime officer rank structure actually existed in one form or another until quite recently. Officers in state militias or the National Guard did not have congressional recognition of their rank as they were not part of the regular army, unless they had previously served as regular army officers, which could make it even more complicated. Of course, just to further complicate things, brevet ranks were not exclusive to wartime. There is an easy way to envision the system. 
and the one that explains this long-enduring appeal to Congress. A brevative rank came with the responsibility of the position, but not the pay and benefits. So a breveted colonel, who was a regular army captain, did not get paid as a colonel, but as a captain, which also applied towards the retirement pensions. There were additional complexities in the system, but essentially it all worked out the same. The United States could promote someone, temporarily at least, without paying them much more, or tying up an officer billet, of which there were very few in the pre-World War I regular army. A consequence of the brevet system was that few officers retired. This made regular army promotions extraordinarily slow prior to World War II. Further, prior to World War II, army promotions were almost exclusively done by seniority. It took retirement or death in the officer corps for everyone to get promoted. Thus, men like Dwight D. Eisenhower, a so-called high flyer in the interwar years, spent 16 of those years as a major. After the First World War, many regular army officers who rose to the rank of colonel or even higher reverted back to their peacetime ranks at war's end, with maybe a single promotion for a few exceptional individuals. So a captain in 1917 might be a colonel in 1918 and a major in 1919. An officer could literally be a brigadier general in war and a lieutenant colonel in peacetime. Confused yet? Well, this is where army logic comes in and produces one of those historical quirks that only the army could invent. When Congress set about promoting all of the officers involved in the Panama Canal, it had a problem. The Corps of Engineers only had one brigadier general slot. Thus, when William Siebert found himself promoted to brigadier general, it was not as an engineer, but as an officer of the line. That meant, instead of building locks and dams, he was now to serve in charge of combat troops. To his credit, Siebert protested against the promotion for the very simple reason he had no experience as a troop leader in infantry or artillery operations. He was a project manager and an engineer who built locks and dams, and he was 55 years old with 28 years of service. The Army, in its infinite wisdom, did not know what to do with Siebert, so it assigned him to the coastal artillery, a real backwater of the Army. The promotion meant as a reward became a punishment. The Army put Siebert in charge of coastal artillery on the Pacific coast, far away from any potential action if the war on the Atlantic came too close to the United States. To add insult to injury, Siebert's wife died. Thus, Siebert spent the next two years languishing away, mourning and wasting his time inspecting coastal artillery installations. A decorated, accomplished engineer whose reward was just about as bad as the Army could make it. Siebert, ever the engineer, chose to focus on the engineering challenges inherent in fixed coastal artillery positions. While Siebert was being promoted and moving to California to assume his new role, the German attacks in Ypres and April and June of 1915 created a brief flurry of British-supplied anti-German propaganda about chemical warfare in the American press. But this was closely followed by the sinking of the Lusitania, and that quickly replaced press reports about the German use of chemical warfare in American media accounts. As a consequence, chemical warfare disappeared from American press reports on the war and remained absent until American entry into the war in 1917. That was not an accident. The British and French cut the cables connecting Germany to the United States and started editing and controlling any dispatches sent over their transatlantic cables to the United States. Concerned that the full horror of the war might lend support to the isolationist cause in the U.S. and keen to get the Americans in the war on the side of the Allies, the British pursued a deliberate effort to keep chemical warfare out of the American media, especially once the British and French started using chemical weapons too. 
Now we can skip ahead a few years here. Siebert's languishing away in the coastal artillery when on April 2nd, 1917, the U.S. enters World War I. Considering the war was almost three years old, one might guess that the United States spent those three years preparing for war. That guess would be incorrect, and it almost always is no matter the war. President Wilson, Congress, and popular opinion were firmly behind American neutrality, and President Wilson deliberately avoided any appearance of preparing for war, especially as the political opposition was most likely to be the one to advocate it. It didn't help that Wilson's most vociferous critic in this regard was the still popular Theodore Roosevelt. But it wasn't just political considerations that contributed to the lack of readiness. The U.S. Army was a moribund institution prior to World War I, still largely structured the same as during the frontier wars between 1865 and 1896. While it had some combat-experienced officers and men who had seen actions in the Spanish-American War, the Philippines insurrection, and the border actions against Pancho Villa, those conflicts were quite different from the modern industrial war then raging in Europe. In fact, the U.S. struggled just to assemble the four regiments it deployed as a newly formed division with Pershing in spring of 1917. That is why when General Pershing set sail for Europe with four of the regular Army's only infantry regiments, they were completely unprepared for war on the Western Front. In fact, they did not even possess gas masks. The lack of preparedness of the United States was the hallmark of its war effort between 1917 and 1918, and its hidebound institutionalism contributed much to that lack of readiness. But so did the British propaganda effort. By obscuring the nature of the war from the American people, combined with the willful ignorance of the United States Army, the Army was severely lacking in nearly every aspect. This is where Brigadier General Siebert re-enters the picture. His 1915 promotion made him both the senior officer of the line and one of the most senior officers in the Army by time and service, a distinction that came with problems. Now, Siebert was not the oldest man in the Army by far, just one of the oldest general officers. As I mentioned, for most of the later 19th and early 20th century, old officers didn't fade away, but hung on for dear life. In fact, in 1885, when Siebert was commissioned, only about 450 of the Army's commissioned officers were under the age of 30. Many were veterans of the Civil War that had ended 20 years earlier. On June 8, 1917, shortly before departure from New York Harbor, Pershing organized the four regiments the U.S. managed to scrape together into a square division structure that the U.S. committed to throughout the war. The Army, according to tradition, summoned Siebert from his banishment to the West Coast and appointed him the first commanding general of the United States Army's 1st Infantry Division, with the wartime rank of Major General. When they sailed to, for Europe, Siebert was no more pleased about this assignment than when he was sent to the coastal artillery. As the division entered training under French and British instruction in a safe area in France, it also struggled to equip itself. For most of the war, the majority of the equipment used by the American Expeditionary Force came from the French or the British. Siebert tended to focus on these challenges, befitting his previous experience, and he threw himself into logistical questions. Now, we shouldn't be too hard on General Siebert. He was surrounded by men in similar or worse situations. In addition to a total lack of training in trench warfare and little to no equipment, the 1st Infantry Division suffered serious leadership deficiencies, deficiencies that the American Expeditionary Force struggled with throughout the war. A small frontier army could scale up quickly and did, but as it did, many men found themselves placed into positions for which they had little training or experience. While this was most true at the junior level, where captains, lieutenants, and non-commissioned officers usually had no more training than the privates they led into battle, 
The upper echelons were similarly unprepared. There were very few regular army officers who had seen combat. And while Siebert did deploy to the Philippines during the Spanish-American War, it was to build a railroad, not to fight. No one in the army had commanded anything larger than a regiment before. And aside from Mexico or the Spanish-American War, those regiments were frequently scattered across remote western outposts. That summer, as additional troops were raised stateside, the 1st Division plunged into an extended training program provided by the British and French. By winter, Pershing hoped to commit the 1st Division to the line, even as he used it as a nucleus around which to build corps and eventually an army. By October 1917, Pershing had the opportunity to promote men that he thought capable of the tasks ahead, but he needed to clean out some dead wood. Thus, he wrote an extensive letter to Secretary of War Newton Baker, expressing his concerns about some of his generals. I hope you will permit me to speak very frankly and quite confidentially, but I fear that we have some general officers who have neither the experience, the energy, nor the aggressive spirit to prepare their units or to handle them under battle conditions as they exist today. I shall comment in an enclosure on the individuals to whom I refer particularly. Pershing left that enclosure out of his memoirs, though the letter itself was reproduced therein. If the enclosure survives, it's remained locked up in the National Archives in College Park, Maryland, untouched. That said, it is a safe bet that Major General Siebert was one of the generals Pershing was talking about. Now, to be fair, few general officers then in the American Expeditionary Force had ever led anything much larger than a battalion, Pershing included. But Siebert, the old engineer, the hero of the Panama Canal, was probably the exact individual Pershing described in his letter, as Pershing had a habit of berating Siebert, sometimes in front of his troops, for exactly the same problems he described in his letter. In one particular incident, Pershing berated Siebert in front of his staff. A young George C. Marshall, incensed by this behavior, intervened directly on Siebert's behalf with General Pershing as he left the meeting. Now, one would expect a young captain so brash to address a general officer who had just finished berating another general officer would see the end of his career. Of course, Pershing while a forceful personality, was still an astute leader. He recognized the talent in Marshall, who would go on to command the U.S. Army in World War II, and promoted him to the American Expeditionary Force headquarters, where he would end up as Pershing's chief of staff. Now, Siebert was well aware of Pershing's dislike of him, and Pershing did little to hide it. But perhaps because of Marshall's intervention, Pershing did not act immediately. While waiting for word back from the War Department, as the 1st Division completed its training at the regimental level and prepared to rotate the 1st American troops into the line in January of 1918, Siebert was finally quietly relieved and sent back to the United States. The quickly promoted Brigadier General Robert Lee Bullard, an aggressive infantry officer and Spanish-American war veteran, replaced Siebert in command of the Big Red One. Bullard was no young stud, though. He'd graduated from West Point the year after Siebert in 1885. Siebert actually did better at West Point, as evidenced by his assignment to the engineers. Bullard graduated in the middle of his class and got frontier duty with the 10th Infantry as a result. In the small world of the frontier army of the late 19th century, everyone knew everyone. Pershing was actually an underclassman in Bullard's platoon at West Point in 1885 and graduated the following year. Proving the exception to the seniority rule, Pershing was younger than both Siebert and Bullard, but only just. However, Blackjack Pershing got to lead the American Expeditionary Force not by seniority, but due to his service in the Spanish-American War. 
where he famously led his black soldiers of the 10th Cavalry up Kettle and San Juan Hill with Teddy Roosevelt. That earned him a faster promotion track, as President Roosevelt later intervened personally in Pershing's career, ensuring his promotion outside of the normal seniority rules. That was fortunate for Pershing, for as his nickname suggests, he was considered tainted in the segregated army of the early 20th century due to his association with the famous Buffalo Soldiers of the 10th. In fact, Pershing was a lowly major in 1905 when Roosevelt personally named him for promotion to Brigadier General after the army repeatedly refused Roosevelt's attempts to have Pershing promoted outside of the usual seniority rules. Now you're probably thinking at this point, what the hell does this have to do with the Chemical Corps? Well, I'm finally getting to that. Between January and March 1918, the chemical war in Europe escalated dramatically. The American Expeditionary Force headquarters in France had already organized a chemical service under Lieutenant Colonel Amos Fries in August 1917. The escalation of the chemical war and the German spring offensives led Pershing to advocate for the creation of a stateside chemical warfare service to consolidate the production of offensive chemical weapons and defensive equipment for the American Expeditionary Force. Now, little, if anything, produced in the United States during the last year of the war ever made it to Europe. Right up to the end of the war, the U.S. remained dependent on British and French supply for most of its needs. But Pershing was thinking longer term. In 1917 and 1918, all of the wartime leadership thought the war would likely continue into 1919. So a new chemical warfare service made sense, especially as 1918 saw widespread use of chemical weapons on a scale unseen before or since. Whatever Pershing's previous disparagement of Siebert, he recommended Siebert to lead the new Chemical Warfare Service, which was formed in June 1918. Perhaps, like his recognition of the talent of Marshall, he realized that this was a job that Siebert could handle. Siebert was advanced to the rank of Major General in the regular army, and thus became the first commander of the Chemical Warfare Service. Finally, in a job he was suited for, Siebert was quite successful in growing the fledgling Chemical Warfare Service into a vast enterprise in the remaining five months of the war. However, it was his final act in uniform. Shortly after war's end, in 1919, Siebert decided to retire from the Army, having recently lost his second wife, whom he had married in 1917. Amos Fries returned from Europe and in 1920 took over as the second commander of the Chemical Warfare Service. So there you have it. A story of a great engineer and well-known American hero for his work on the Panama Canal who ends up a disgraced general having received a promotion meant as a reward that turned into a punishment. The first commander of both the the 1st Infantry Division and the Chemical Warfare Service who gets relieved on the eve of combat only to end his career on a high note. Incidentally, General Siebert continued to give to the Army. Two of his sons went on to be general officers themselves. If you would like to learn more about General Siebert, there are two biographies available. One is long out of print, and the other is relatively new, The Goliath of Panama by Robert W. Dickey, out now and available on Amazon.com. We are also rapidly approaching the centennial of American entry into World War I. There has never been a greater time to learn about that war or to participate in events to mark its anniversary. The war marks the beginning of the Seaburn profession, and many of its lessons still apply today. We encourage you to explore more of that history. As always, check out SeaburnPro.net for more on this and other topics. In our next podcast, we will examine a bizarre episode in the early 1920s when Major General Amos Fries, commander of the Chemical Warfare Service, accused the League of Women Voters of being a communist front organization. Fries also hid a secret domestic military intelligence unit 
inside the Chemical Warfare Service after it had been ordered disbanded at the end of World War I. Stay tuned to SeaburnPro.net and watch out for that coming podcast. In the meantime, please remember to spread the word about SeaburnPro.net. Like our Facebook page, subscribe to our RSS feed, and if you really like what we are doing, consider purchasing something from our merchandise page to help defray the costs of keeping our site up and running. Thank you for visiting SeaburnPro.net and listening to this, our inaugural podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. And remember, when in doubt, keep calm and decon.